Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm very, very tired, but I'm good. I know. This is the latest that I've recorded in so long. It is seriously <laughs> 10.30 my time because oh I am my goodness. in Springfield right now. <laughs> and I'm just like, my body is just like, what are you doing? It's not what, happy. You should be winding down for bed right now. And also, it's so cold. It is so <laughs> cold. I'm like, I've got a sweater on. I'm wrapped in a blanket. You look like, really what? cozy. I thought maybe you were just going for cozy. I mean, it, it's getting to cozy territory because I do have my red wine and like a nice warm blanket, but I'm just, my I'm not acclimated for this. I'm not built like this anymore. It's raining all the time. And you know, like we're not used to more than like two rainy days in a row. Right. I can't yeah. handle this. It's like a week of rain. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what do I wear? What do I do? Why am I always wet? Like that's my yeah. problem is when it rains, I just feel like I'm always wet. Always just kind of damp, just kind yeah. of cold, like always just feeling like I can't do anything. Like I that get paralyzed. To the bone. Yeah. And I get like paralyzed when it's rainy. Like I'm like, I, I, what do I do? I can't like go for a walk. I can't, I, my freedom is being inhibited. <laughs> oh, but anyway, I mean, we digress. These are really not problems. Yeah. Yeah, I feel you, though. I mean, that's why we like living in L.A., though, so we can kind of get away from the normal weather of the rest of the country, I guess. That's right. It's like the only benefit because L.A. is so expensive. (laughs) You know, it's like, what? uh, Why? (laughs) The benefits are dwindling more and more every day. I'm like, why did I choose to live here? This is fucking nuts. Because Um, you're too thin skinned to live anywhere else. Let me tell you right now. Uh, (laughs) Agreed. How are how are you doing, Madigan? I haven't seen you in a week or so and only via Zoom, which is very sad. It's so sad. Um, I mean, I'm doing pretty good. I'm exhausted right now. I just had a really long week of all the work stuff. So I'm a little bit pooped myself. I'm ready to eat dinner and go to bed as soon as this is done. Um, But yeah, I'm doing good. I'm ready to do another episode. It's just so sad to do this remotely now. It's horrible. (laughs) I know. I feel like we have really negative like connotations to recording remotely like, so much because we had to do it during the pandemic like we were forced to and we didn't have a choice because I feel like before that whenever we you know had to record long distance it was kind of like ooh, it's it's kind of fun like it's like a little treat we don't usually do it we get to be at home in our pjs or whatever um, totally but I think because we were forced to do it during the pandemic now we're like scarred we're scarred yeah. from that We seriously are. We seriously, seriously are. This is no longer fun. I want off this ride. Sorry. (laughs) 
Oh, I forgive you. So this week we are bringing you another installment of Feminist Faves. I forgot to double check before we started recording, but I believe you're going first this time because I feel like I, I went first am. last time. Yes, awesome. I double checked. I am going first this week. And, you know, I had kind of a tough time coming up with someone. You know, I feel like I always come up with like a grip of people and I'm like, yeah, these are all like really good options to do for feminist faves. And then for some reason, I never like save them or send them to myself. And so I completely forget about all of these options that I had. And so this week I was doing a, a new Google search to try and like come up with somebody fun to do. What was um, the Google search? Please share. Oh gosh, you know, I'd have to go back and look through my history, but I, cause I always like slightly change the wording to try right. and be like, um, I've heard the quotations or, help too as well. Really? Like, like, yeah. I guess if you put a certain word in quotations, like that will pop up more in the results or something like that there, you can Google Google tips <laughs> and see what wow. comes up. I did not know that, but this person that I'm covering this week, um, I'd seen them pop up like here and there. And especially during the uprisings that were happening in the summer of 2020, I saw this person being kind of promoted as an example of a really great, authentic white ally. And her mugshot from her days as a freedom writer, which I will talk a little bit about, um, was kind of being spread around the internet. And that is how this person came to my attention. And then recently on TikTok, I saw some TikToks of her recently now as an old woman in her 80s, um, kind of going through, I think she was going through the Civil Rights Museum and talking to people about her experiences or like pointing to pictures of her from that time or whatever. Um, and I just found her very interesting and I wanted to learn more about her. And I bet you, if you were to see her mugshot, you would know who I'm talking about. So I am today going to tell you about Joan Trumpower Mulholland. So mm. she's definitely kind of a, a lesser known feminist fave. But she was born on September 14th, 1941, making her a Virgo. And I love a Virgo. Virgo and Pisces are sister signs. Ooh, so nice. It's said that you either love each other or you hate each other. But I <laughs> love a Virgo. I feel like they keep me grounded and focused. I'm for it completely. Ooh, I like that. Yes. So she was raised in the segregated city of Arlington, Virginia. So Joan's great grandparents were slave owners in Georgia, and her mother was a vocal segregationist. And the family had several black servants working in their home growing up. And Joan, you know, noticed from an early age that the people who were working in her home were treated as inferior. But at the same time, this was just kind of the It standard. was the way of life, yeah. Right. But she began to pick up other things, right? Because she was going to church, she was raised in the church, and she started to see a really stark contrast between what was being preached at the pulpit and how many in the congregation um, behaved and believed in regards to segregation and race issues. So totally. She said, I think that's something that you and I can both really relate to when it, yes. we look back on our religious teachings. And I know that for myself, 
I started noticing a lot as I distanced myself from going like every weekend and stuff with my mom, um, certain sermons when it would be like kind of veiledly talking about, you know, homophobia and things like that, where I was just like, this doesn't sit right with me and I don't agree with this and that kind of thing. But yet you have this like, but this is all I know and this is what I've been taught is right. And I also want to believe in God. And, you know, I, th- I feel like for a lot of people that can be kind of a complicated situation with not fully believing in everything that's taught to you in your religion. Right. It feels very hypocritical. And I think she felt that from a very young age. So she said, I think my thinking was propelled in this direction by being sort of a literalist, which just as an aside is a very Virgo thing for her to say. Um, We memorized Bible verses about how to treat each other, and we had to memorize the Declaration of Independence back then, and we didn't practice what we preached. So she's memorizing these Bible verses that are saying that like God loves all of his children equally, and she's memorizing the Declaration of Independence, which is talking about all men are created equal, and yet she's seeing this very stark contrast between whites and blacks where she's growing up and even within her own household. Right. So when she was 10, she would have an experience that would change her life. So while visiting her grandmother in Georgia one summer, Joan and a friend dared each other to walk over to the side of town where the black residents lived, right? Like this was just kind of like a, ooh, how novel thing to do. We're going to walk over to the other side of the town where black residents lived. So she said, quote, so we left our bikes and went for a stroll and it was just so blatant, the difference. I mean, the white section was poor enough. We're talking dirt roads and water from the well, but it was just so much worse in the black community. And the school is what really hit me. The black school was just an unpainted shack, for lack of a better word, a one room schoolhouse up on stone piles, outdoor plumbing, and what looked like a pot belly stove for heat. It just Mm. really hit me then just how unequal things were and so she's 10 at this time but she's able to kind of grasp like you know this is blatant and stark and she also said that while she was there like walking through the town it was very apparent to her though nobody said anything to her that they all kind of recoiled from her like they all like kept their distance kept their eyes down well that was kind of what I was thinking is that it's like not like it would just be so strange I'm sure at this time for like a very young white girl by herself to be coming into a predominantly black area you know yes yeah and I'm I'm sure sure she stuck out like a sore thumb (laughs) yeah I mean this is only a few years before Emmett Till so you know and that of course had dire consequences if you were seen to be misbehaving or misbehaving. I know I was like worried that she was gonna like talk to some boy and like get him in trouble or something like that was my concern with this story Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that really struck her. I mean, it was very obvious how much people withdrew from her and did not want to be um, close to her. Right. And so she had to kind of examine why that was like, why are they scared of me? It seemed like, you know, that's a really big thing for a 10 year old to be noticing. Like, that's very, very, very self aware as a 10 year old. Yes, definitely. Um, she's, she's very, I feel like she's very analytical throughout her whole life. 
So it was at this time that Joan grew more and more vocal about the injustices she witnessed at home in Virginia, much to her mother's displeasure. She had planned on going to a small church university in Ohio or Kentucky, but her mother would not allow it out of fear of integration. So she was scared that these like smaller Southern, you know, ironically, she was afraid that these like church colleges, these smaller Southern church colleges would be more likely to integrate rather than some of these big, more prestige colleges like Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, which is where she encouraged Joan to go. Um, And Joan was accepted. She initially did not want to go to Duke, but her mother kind of really pushed her in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if her mother's thinking with that has something to do with just the prominence of religion and black culture if maybe and also because of the morals of religion that maybe she thought that those schools would be more willing to integrate their classes rather than you know some sort of white establishment you know what i mean like duke is such a historically white establishment like they're so clearly not going to integrate like i can see where her mom is coming from it's just so shitty that her mom was so blatant about that like it's, yes that's Horribly icky. Yes. Her mom was very vocally segregationist. And I think like these prestige colleges, in quotes, prestige colleges like Duke, Yale, Harvard, right? They gatekeep in every other way already. Like they're so classist and they gatekeep in so many other ways. I think um, that Joan's mom, her thinking was probably like there was a larger barrier to her having to be in quotes, having to be exposed to integration at Duke rather than anywhere else. Um, Fuck you, mom. Yeah, yeah. You suck. So the men and women were kept separate on campus or they had separate campuses altogether at Duke. And it was customary for women to pledge to sororities and rush sororities um, there. But Jane was completely uninterested in this and instead found other events put on by the international club uh, centering politics and civil rights to attend. So that's what she started doing. And in the spring of 1960, she participated in her first of many sit-ins to protest segregation. And this led to her first of two arrests in that year. So her very first year at Duke, she's arrested twice. I bet her parents loved that. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, So she recalled the first time she said, quote, my roommate and I got back after dark from jail and there was a note that we were to report to the Dean of Women. She opened the door for us to her office and then she took out her keys and locked the door and sort of <clears throat> jiggled the keys and put them back in her pocket. Oh, what uh, it's so intimidating. I just remember that so vividly. And she tried to get us to agree that we wouldn't do this anymore. And then she asked us if we'd called our parents. So as a white Southern woman from a good family, her behavior was considered so unusual at the time. You know, she's kind of like upper middle class going to this very nice university. She's born and raised Southern, like Southern roots through and through. She's this beautiful blonde woman, white woman. Right. Yeah. And so why would she lower herself to such standards? Right. Like, you know, like 
she didn't need why to. Why does she care? I think. Yeah. Why does she care? It doesn't affect her, you know? And so her behavior was seen as so unusual that she was branded as mentally ill and actually taken <laughs> into a psychiatric facility for of testing. Of course she was. They're like, of course something she was. Has to be wrong with you, right? Wow. Imagine if we were around at that time. I know. I know, 100%. They'd lock us up and throw away the key. (laughs) And we would be proud of it, which I think (laughs) she was too. I mean, looking back now, it's like, yeah, you were a free free thinker at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So still, despite all of this, she would not be deterred. And she did begin to see her outspoken activism make waves. So one year after her protests began, she says the all-white male Duke football team joined the picket line. So it was just like... That's not where mm -hmm. I thought that sentence was going to end. I could tell by your face. I was like, my (laughs) eyes got real big. My head cocked a little bit. I was like, what are you going to say about this all-white Duke football team? Because I always think like... Whenever talking about Duke, I always kind of think of the Duke lacrosse scandal, which like they didn't like they were innocent and all that, you know, but I still like I'm always, oh, God, what scandal these white boys are up to now, you know? Well, yeah. And I think, you know, that white male athletes, especially and in this time, the demographic still, there's a certain (laughs) amount of, um, entitlement or privilege that you think of when you think of that group of people. And so I think that that's probably why your initial, like your hackles were raised right away. But, you know, she says that she was kind of instrumental and I believe that she was, you know, she didn't do it on her own. Her roommate was involved and there were other students who were involved in this movement. She was part of something that helped Mm-hmm. Yeah, this. but like, and that's huge at a place like Duke, you know, given everything that we've just said about it. And this whole football team joined the picket line. Yeah, which that's is really kind important of, allyship. Yeah. So Jane says that while the students at Duke were largely supportive of her activism, the administration was not. And after a year, she dropped out of the school. Like, and largely that was because of that dean of women who I'd already spoken about. Like, it was making her life so difficult. And she didn't Mm want to go there in the first place. And really, her focus was on activism. So she's like, this isn't where I can do the most good. I don't want to be here. In the words of Olivia Rodrigo, good for you. Good for good for her, you know. <laughs> uh, so after leaving Duke, she moved to Washington D.C., where she became more active in sit-ins and joined NAG, <laughs> which is nonviolent act, which is a nonviolent action group, and yeah. Howard University's sympathy picket group. I love that it's called NAG because really, I think that people who are protesting and rioting for certain things can just seem like, oh, they're just nagging us. They're just I know. nagging. Like, that's a I really love funny it. acronym. I love it. I want to reclaim the word nag. Let's do it, please. Like, <laughs> I think, you know, are we nagging or are we just being, like, really vocal and passionate about something we care about? Mm, 100%. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> she said, quote, the fact that I had experience in sit-ins, was arrested twice, and was from Arlington where they were planning to go the next day, that made me particularly welcome. So she starts participating (laughs) in a lot more sit-ins, and one took place at Glen Echo Park, where Joan would show up 
after work to picket. So she'd go to work and she'd come here and she'd join the picket line. And one thing that she did there at Glen Echo Park was she would buy a handful of tickets to the park's carousel ride and she would hand them out to black protesters who weren't allowed to purchase tickets. So she would buy the tickets, she'd give them to them and let them go inside. Fantastic. yeah, she would later recall, folks, ticket in hand, got arrested on the merry-go-round. That so was going to be my next in. question, though. Was she just, like, leading them into... But why yeah, would you be... They, it's kind of... They knew they that knew. that's what was going to... Okay, because I was going to say yeah. that would be... If they didn't, that's, like, kind of shady to be like, here, take these tickets... You're going to get arrested. No, no. <laughs> no, they knew that they would be arrested. It was equivalent to any of the other sit-ins. It's kind of like you're taking a gamble of like going into a space. Um, I would love a good merry-go-round sit-in. Just keep going around and around and around and around. It's kind of interesting because um, I think her son, she has a son named Loki. All of her kids have very interesting names. I think she has a son named Bingo too, but um, she has a <laughs> son named Loki. Was his name, well. <laughs> and he made a documentary about her that I'll mention a little later on. But um, he was saying how like, yeah, there's like a white section of the bus and a black section of the bus, but there's no, you know, white and black section of the merry-go-round. Right. So, On June 4th, 1961, 19-year-old Joan joined the Freedom Riders, which was a group of black and white activists who challenged the legally segregated buses and bus stations of the South by refusing to travel separately. And we've talked about the Freedom Riders before. I mean, they probably deserve their own episode. Certainly. Um, But what they did was truly incredible. Uh, And it was not only black activists, but also white activists because that was it. And white activists were actually a huge part of the Freedom Riders because they needed to be integrated. So they would go on these buses together and she volunteered to do that. And there's actually like pictures and um, footage of of her kind of in the background. You can spot her. Yeah, and there are so many... There's so many famous activists that were Freedom Riders too. Like we've discussed them in so many different Feminist Faves episodes, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. So there were 13 riders that left on two Greyhound buses en route to New Orleans from Washington, D.C. So that was the the route that they were taking. And before she got on the bus, you know, she kind of talked about like her thoughts going into this and she'd been arrested before. And so she lined her skirt with blank pieces of paper so that she could document her experience if she were Mm. arrested. And she did. She used those pieces of paper um, as a journal when she was later on arrested. Um, So speaking to PBS later about the experience, she said, quote, the worst that could happen is you're going to die. And once you've accepted that, you don't have to worry about it anymore. So you may Mm. as well make it worthwhile. (laughs) She's like, look, we could die. So if we're going to die, let's like, let's make it worth it. Yeah. Let's document what's going on. Let's be a part of this as much as we can. Brave, brave brave. Yeah, it's so brave. So while with the Freedom Riders, Joan was arrested getting off the bus in Jackson, Mississippi. She was taken to Hines County Jail before being transported to the Mississippi State Penitentiary, Parchman. So Parchman was a notoriously brutal institution, and Joan shared a cell with two other women just feet away from the death chamber on death row because they were so overcrowded. Um, Her cell, you know, sharing it 
which is like a one person cell sharing right. it with two other women was one of the least crowded cells in parchment at the time. So That's it horrible. was so overcrowded that they started to put people on in the cells on death row. That's why she stayed there. So when they got to Parchman, the women were issued coarse denim, black and white striped shirts and T-shirts. Prior to being locked in cells, the women were stripped and each given a vaginal examination. The matron cleansed her gloved hand prior to each examination by dunking it in a bucket of liquid that Joan would later say smelled like Lysol. So she put her hand in a bucket of Lysol and then stuck it up. Okay, right. we are not working at an ice cream shop. You can't just put the scoop in some water and dip up the next flavor. That's not how this works. It's it's wrong in so many ways. Oh. So many ways. Yes. Um, That's prison, disgusting. It truly is. Like, and it's it's also such an intimidation tactic, which I think yeah. is what they were doing a lot of with these prisoners. Um, in prison, she was segregated from her fellow. NAG friends, nonviolent action group friends. Uh, And she described the experience as isolating with everyone unaware of what was going on because she was a white woman. You know, most the majority of her friends within this group were black people. And Mm -hmm. so she was completely separated from most of the people that she knew and didn't know how they were being treated. I'm sure she was very mm -hmm. worried about them. Yes. Yeah. There was an overcrowding situation, like I said, at Parchman that summer. So when Joan was offered a three-month sentence or $200 bail, which I was like, $200, that's like not a lot. But I did look, and in today's money, it would be closer to like $1,500. So okay, yeah, keep that in mind. And I doubt her parents are going to be bailing her out. Yeah, they're not helping her. But regardless of that, she chose the former. She chose to stay out her sentence in jail um, to prevent others from being detained because it was so overcrowded that she's like, if we can just keep this jail packed, they won't be able to arrest anybody else. So Mm. she was like, I'll stay and I'll like, you know, I'll stay out my sentence. Wow. Uh, And she said, quote, the idea was to make it as expensive and as inconvenient for the federal government. So the governor of Mississippi at the time ordered Parchman to, quote, break their spirits, not their bones. So that's why I say like all that stuff about like dipping the hand in the Lysol and the vaginal examinations and, you know, maybe even putting them on death row. I don't know. But like all of that stuff mentally and intimidating them to making them break. Yes, and the guards even seized for a good number of the Freedom Riders and other members of this organization who were arrested during this time. The guards seized their bug screens, because you're talking Mississippi in the summer. Right. Um, So seized their bug screens and their mattresses, forcing the protesters to sleep on the floor in their cells. Oh, that's awful. It is. I mean, it's just so inhumane. Her days were organized into a routine of quiet time, singing, exercise, a lesson of some sort. Yes. So that's actually something she talked about a lot is that the protesters would um, sing. The prisoners would sing. Oh, I thought maybe that was like part of the prison curriculum that they were to sing for an hour every day. And I'm like, hey, that doesn't sound so bad. No, it was something that all of the protesters did. And I think it was something to try and keep morale up. And so that maybe so that they could like hear each other as well. Yeah. Um, You know, 
So she would do that. She would exercise. She would try and like put some kind of lesson in for the day. And she would meet once a week with, even though she wasn't Jewish, she would meet once a week with a rabbi um, to pray because I think she just needed that kind of like spiritual outlet. And so after roughly two months, she was released uh, shortly before the start of school. So soon after Joan's release, two black students enrolled at the University of Georgia. They were the first to do so post-segregation, and the rioting was so bad after these students enrolled in the University of Georgia that even pro-segregationists had to condemn the actions of the rioters. Like, yeah, they to were protect like, like the, the people. Yeah, they were like, you guys need to calm down, relax. So this gave Joan an idea. It was then that she decided to enroll in a traditionally all-black college. So she became the first white person to enroll in (laughs) and be accepted at Tougaloo College in Jackson, uh, where she ended up meeting um, activist Medgar Evers and Martin Luther King Jr. Mm Mm-hmm. So her enrollment at Tougaloo prompted many attempts to shut down the school. She received death threats and threatening letters, um, some from black people who were understandably wary of her motives. They were like, of course, like, why do you want to come here? Yeah. Why do you want to be in our space? I can completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. And then many from white people who feared that her actions were a huge step forward towards equality and integration. Mm. So police were regularly involved as well because they feared her, a white woman, being in such close proximity with so many black men. So they were there to keep her safe or whatever. In quotes, keep her safe and also just like, you know integrated marriages were not a thing that happened at this time was not legal at this time. And there were so many misunderstandings medically about the differences between like white men and black men at the time and eugenics and all of that, where there really was like so much behind this fear of interracial relationships or interracial like relations in general between people like being friends or anything like there was that was a huge threat because they believed that you know black men were so much more dangerous you know yeah yeah i mean and again like this is less than 10 years after emmett till at this point so um put yourself in that mindset of like, she is the only white woman at a school full of black people and people are losing their minds. Right. Yeah. Her parents were especially appalled by her (laughs) choice to attend Tougaloo and tried to bribe Joan with a trip to Europe in exchange for her leaving the school. Wow. How privileged white family is that? Right. So she accepted the trip. She went on the vacation with her parents. And then when they got back, she went right back to attending school. Thank God. That's exactly how I wanted that to go. Thanks for the trip, mom and dad. I'm going back to school. Bye. Mm -hmm. Thanks thanks for that little break. But I've got, you know, I got to roll in the next year. Oh, my God. So (laughs) two years after enrolling in the school, Joan was asked to join the historically all African-American sorority Delta Sigma Theta. So she became a Delta Sigma Theta member. She still gets together with her sisters at like 80. Um, Oh, my God. And, you know, that's how you know that this wasn't just 
somebody posing as an activist who's like welcome in the community. This wasn't somebody who was just appropriating this culture. This was somebody who was well respected um, and respected this culture that she was right. Asked well, she because it doesn't sound like she was taking on their culture. She was remaining true to herself and who she was. She wasn't like, you know, starting to talk or dress or whatever differently than she was. She was still being herself, but was expanding her mind and her heart to these people where no other white person had done that before. Right. And they genuinely felt that from her because I will tell you, like they would not have asked her to join the sorority if they didn't feel that way. Right. Um, so it's it's just very, very cool. So she graduated Tougaloo in 1964. Prior to her graduation on May 28, 1963, Joan participated in the now infamous Woolworth lunch counter sit-in in Jackson, Mississippi. So in the most iconic photo from the event, or one of the most iconic photos, um, it's three people sitting at the lunch counter. There's like people, crowd mobbing Mm -hmm. them, um, pouring food and drink on them. Yeah, this picture is like unbelievably famous. Yes, it's huge. It's in like all textbooks. Uh, Yeah. You'll recognize it when we post it on our Instagram. But Mm -hmm. uh, Joan is the person who's in the middle. Like her, the back of her head is to the camera. uh, So you can't see her face, but she is the person in the middle of this photo. And the other two people are um, Tougaloo student Anne Moody, who's a black woman, and NAACP field secretary uh, John Salter, who looks like a white man in the photo, and I think he is part white and he is part Native American. Um, okay. But So she's sandwiched between these people in the photo. So at the lunch counter, over 200 people poured in vying to hurt her and her fellow protesters. Police, both in uniform and in plain clothes, sat idly by as more and more people crowded into the store. At one point, a black protester, Memphis Brown, was pulled off the counter and dragged outside where he was severely beaten by former police officer Benny Oliver. When this happened, Joan calmly took his place at the counter. So he was pulled out and Joan just stepped in and sat in his place between Mm -hmm. Ann Moody and John Salter. She She recalls the crowd chanting, trigger warning, She recalls the crowd chanting white nigger at her, throwing glass at her and burning her fellow protester, John Salter, with cigarettes. Eventually, some of the attendees dragged Joan and Ann Moody out by their hair. The fact that Joan was a white woman prompted the police to intervene in this. So once they dragged (laughs) them out, because they've done this now to a white woman, the police intervened and they actually arrested her assailant. And as soon as her assailant was arrested, she went right back into the lunch counter, sat back down and joined her fellow protesters. That's ridiculous. Yes. But it's great that she continued doing what she was doing, but it's ridiculous what the cops did. Yeah, I mean, but it seems that Joan is so very aware of her privilege as a white woman, and Mm -hmm. she continues, she never takes advantage, I mean, she takes advantage of her privilege in the best ways, and she never takes advantage of her privilege um, in a way that's... Yes, exactly. Like, she didn't say, like, oof, well, what a close call, and just, like, leave. She went back in, Exactly, yeah. 
Yeah. But, and when she went back in, the violence escalated. So John Salter was punched in the jaw with brass knuckles and Anne mm. Moody was picked up and thrown against the counter. So she was starting to fear for their lives just before things started to draw to a close. The sit-in ended at about 2 p.m. when the president of Tougaloo College got a hold of the national office of Woolworth, who advised the store manager to shut the store down because he was like, the store manager was refusing to shut it down. So it went on for hours, like hours and hours. Um. Bill Miner, then the Mississippi correspondent covering civil rights events in the New Orleans Times, said that the Jackson-Woolworth sit-ins was, quote, the signature event of the protest movement in Jackson, the first one with real violence. Mm. So Jones' very prominent involvement in such significant events of the civil rights movement prompted an execution attempt by the KKK in the summer of 1963. So they surrounded Joan and several other activists on the road and badly beat their driver. She narrowly escaped and later did learn that she was one of their specific targets because, you know... That sends a really strong message. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it looked really bad to have this white woman, you know, before I think it allowed a lot of white people to distance themselves from the civil rights movement. But it's so much harder to sit back and do nothing when you see other white people stepping in and doing things. And again, people and you want to stop them so that more people don't start doing that. Like, I feel like by making an example of her and executing her like it does kind of set precedent to other people that are maybe wanting to come forward and be more like her. And they're like, this is what happens if you take their side. Like that's incredibly threatening. Exactly. So after the passing of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, she continued to support the civil rights movement by volunteering to register black people to vote. She also attended the March from Selma to Montgomery and the March on Washington, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his now infamous I Have a Dream speech. Was she in the movie Selma? Like, did she have a role? I don't know. I want to say no, um, just because I feel like she is so often overlooked when we're talking about um, prominent members of the civil rights movement that I'd be surprised if they put her in there. But I could be wrong. I was wondering if maybe I had like seen her around, you know, in any just because we're talking about things that I feel like we've discussed on the show before. So it's interesting that like. I don't know. I'm trying to put those, you know, my synapses in my brain are trying to like remember mm-hmm. her. Yeah, you know? I, I don't think so. I, I really do think that she hmm. is so overlooked. I think she's right. really overlooked um, because I think she's she represents kind of what the ordinary average. Uh, other than the fact that she is a white Southern woman, like right. I think she represents kind of like what a lot of people were doing at that, like just seeing that like, this is something that I, I need to participate in. Um, and it was kind of just like, she was a, your everyday activist. She wasn't right. a John Lewis or a Martin Luther King Jr. She wasn't you know? like a name. Yeah. Yeah. A few days after the March on Washington, the KKK set a bomb off at the 16th street Baptist church in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And, in, in that bombing, 15 people were injured and four little girls were killed. 
She recalled the funeral of the four girls as the saddest day of the civil rights movement. So she went there to Birmingham, and while there, she took a piece of glass from the explosion, glued it to black ebony wood, and fashioned a necklace out of it, which she wore for years before donating it to the Smithsonian Museum, where it is currently on display. Wow. She also carried a piece of glass uh, from the wreckage in her wallet for years. And she said that she would feel it every time she would, you know, go into her wallet to grab change. Wow. You know, she kept it in there as a reminder. There is something about like keeping things in your wallet. I don't know why, but I have this thing. My favorite symbol is the evil eye. And I have one in my room. I've got one like mm-hmm. in uh, pretty much every room of the house. I have one in my car. So a lot of tattooed times. Tattooed on I, your body. It's tattooed on my body. Yeah, exactly. Um, like a lot of times when my loved ones travel, I'll give them an evil eye to put in their wallet or something to have with them so that it goes with them wherever they go and they can be yeah. safe. Yeah. Uh, So due to her actions as an activist participating in at least three dozen sit-ins, not only was she disowned by her family, but she was also, you know, hunted, like I said, multiple times by the Klan for execution. Her mother believed that she was, quote, sucked up into a cult. I mean, So disowned her and was like, oh, you know, we disowned Joan because she joined a cult. Yeah, Um, sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah, and her father, it sounds like her father didn't really have super strong views. Like, he was mostly just worried about her safety and went uh-huh. along with whatever her mother said. But it sounds like her mom had a lot of really strong opinions and ha- mm-hmm. should be listened to. You know, I don't think that yeah. he was willing to argue with the mom. Exactly. Um, but regardless, I mean, she lost her parents yeah. uh, because of her activism, because her parents were bigots um but she created her own family so though her marriage to husband dan mulholland only lasted five years she had five sons one of whom produced an she was married five years and had five sons with him right well i don't know if they had all of their sons within the marriage i'm not sure got it i mean i I just five kids in five years would be a lot it's a lot it's a lot um i think that they had them i think they were married or sorry, I think they were married from 1975 to 1980. I'm pretty sure, but I didn't write that down. Um, but it was it was kind of cute. It's like they got divorced, but they still stayed pretty amicable. They lived like a few streets away. And he would have the kids, all of the kids all weekend. And then he would take one kid every Wednesday. <laughs> because he was like, it was so hard to get one-on-one time when you have five children. So he yeah. would like take them one at a time um, on occasion so that he could have one-on-one time with them. That's but sweet. one of their sons, Loki, produced an award-winning documentary film entitled An Ordinary Hero, The True Story of Joan Trumpower Mulholland in 2013. And then he also released another documentary in 2017 called The Uncomfortable Truth, which was from a more personal perspective, investigating his own family's history and role in the establishment and practice of institutional racism in America. Mm. So I think that that is so cool that she passed that down, that like we 
something that I think makes so many white people uncomfortable now. And it's the reason why people are pushing to stop critical race theory and all these things in schools is because they don't want to face the role that they or their families may have played in this horrific institution that totally. has existed in, in the United States. Right. And he decided to like go and seek that and take a look at it and put a mirror up to it. And, right. um, I just think that that's it. It speaks to Joan's incredible and powerful Teaching. influence. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so funny because that's something that I've kind of said about myself a lot where I one of the big reasons that I want to be a mom is because I want to create someone that was even better than I could ever be. You know what I mean? Like if I'm starting mm -hmm. on this journey I, I want to create somebody else that can continue that on and create more good in the world after I'm not there anymore, you know? Yeah. It's a good, yeah. it's a good goal to have as a parent is to just want to create the most aware and intelligent and empathetic people. Yeah, yeah. So Joan continues to be vocal and active in anti-racism today and has even started the Joan Trumpower Mulholland Foundation, and it is dedicated to educating youth about the civil rights movement and how to make a difference in their communities. The goal of the foundation is to provide learning materials for schools to educate the students on the part of American history that is often misunderstood or looked over. Beautiful. So, Exactly. I mean, she is pro CRT, we can say. <laughs> um, so she does hope to inform adolescents specifically on how to spot racism and put an end to racist ideologies. Yes, that which, is so important. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I just love her so much. Like she's just mm. like this little old lady now who wears bandanas all the time. Like she just Aww. has a collection of different colored bandanas and it's like I love adorable. Uh, so to me, like the reason why I wanted to cover her is that she really does seem and feel like the ultimate white ally to me. You know, when people don't, I, I feel like so often white people get paralyzed in feeling like they don't know what to do. Like how do they, they feel like if they can't be the perfect ally that they just won't do anything. They just won't, right. you know, get involved at all. And I feel like when people don't know what to do or how to be anti-racist, um, they should look to Joan. Joan did it right. Joan put right. herself right in the middle of all of it and always used her privilege for good, always used her privilege to further the cause and help those around her as much as mm -hmm. she possibly could. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I just loved learning about this lady. So I love it. <laughs> what a way to end it. I don't know. I just really love learning about this lady. She's she, adorable. <laughs> I mean, wonderful. How unbelievable. Fantastic. And she's still alive and kicking, doing her thing. She's still alive and kicking. That's right. I love it. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Should we take a quick break? Yes, let's do it. All right. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. 
It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. Okay, we're back. All right, so this week I am going to talk about someone that... This is so recent that I don't really even know a lot about her personal life, but it's somebody that we are both really big fans of, that I think a lot of listeners to the show are going to be really big fans of. I'm going to be talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Oh my gosh. Okay, let's go. I'm excited. Yeah, it's such, a, it's such an obvious one, but I was like, I've been a fan. I mean, she really just kind of jumped onto the scene Really, I feel like in like 2018, she kind of started her political career earlier than that when she was like still in college and things like that. But she's really only been around for a few years, but she's made such an impact on, you know, democratic socialism and democratic politics and Mm -hmm. politics as a whole that I feel like even though I don't have really like a full picture of her life because she's still doing so much and is going to have such a long career, it's hard to really give this like whole bio but i wanted to kind of talk about her up until this point and kind of yeah i mean we can always we can always do a part two on aoc (laughs) later on when i'm sure she's accomplished a million other things but when she's our first female president yeah we'll cover we'll cover part one Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So she was born to a Catholic family in the Bronx, New York, on October 13th, 1989. I Libra. She's a Libra. I love the Bronx so much. My ex, Chris, was from the Bronx, and so I visited there a lot. I miss it a lot. I really, really, really love that borough. It's a fantastic place. Her mom is Blanca Ocasio-Cortez, and her father is Sergio Ocasio-Roman. She also has a little brother named Gabriel. Her dad was a second-generation Bronxite and was born to Puerto Rican parents, and Blanca was actually born in Puerto Rico. Sergio, her father, worked as an architect, and her mother was a house cleaner. AOC lived with her family in the Bronx neighborhood of Park Chester in a small apartment until she was five years old when her family moved to a house in suburban Yorktown Heights, 30 minutes from the Bronx. And then I wrote, Hamilton nerds unite. (laughs) Yorktown. (laughs) The Bronx Uh, definitely has like a vibe. Like there's like a real vibe. And I feel like AOC has that vibe. She (laughs) does. It's tough, but it's also very like... I don't know, like everybody just like knows each other and everyone kind of like goes to each other's houses and stuff. At least how that's how it was in my ex's neighborhood. And I loved that like his grandmother, I mean, she technically lived in Queens, but she didn't speak like any English. And she lived there for, I think when I knew her, it had already been like 30 some years that she'd lived in that same area. And she'd gotten by without ever really having to learn English. Like it really is such 
a fascinating, beautiful area. And I mean, like, I love that you could go into any bodega and get chicken over rice, like just walk down mm-hmm. the street. And it's like, oh, it's so good. I miss it. There's there's something magical about New York just in general. I feel like yeah. I love I love New York. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd ever want to live there necessarily, but I really, really love to go and visit and be a yes. part of it. It's a very cool place. It is. So her family moved to Yorktown for a better public education, but they still stayed really close to their extended family in the Bronx and spent a lot of time over there. So um, so she started being called Sandy when she was like in high school. So I kind of go back and forth between referring to her as AOC and Sandy. Um, <laughs> but she was able to kind of see this very stark difference between her own education and area of living and where her cousins were living and the type of schools they were going to and the type of education they were getting. And that was something that was really um, noticeable to her when she was little. She went to Yorktown High School and graduated in 2007. The same year, she entered the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair in the microbiology category with a research project on the effects of antioxidants on the lifespan of the nematode, I'm gonna say this wrong, Kynorhabititis elegans. She's really smart. Okay. She's I was going to say, that's, that sounds like big brain energy. I don't know. This, <laughs> this is microbiology bullshit here that my brain cannot possibly comprehend. She came in second place, though, and in honor of her efforts, the MIT Lincoln Laboratory named a small asteroid after her, and it is called 23238 Ocasio-Cortez. Wow. She also got into student government in high school, participating in youth legislative programs by the National Hispanic Institute. She then went on to Boston University for college. In 2008, her father passed away from lung cancer. In the wake of his death, there were long legal proceedings regarding his will and estate, and AOC became heavily involved in this process, and she says that during this, she learned firsthand how attorneys appointed by the court to administer an estate can enrich themselves at the expenses of the family struggling to make sense of the bureaucracy. She also got into an internship with Ted Kennedy during college where she worked in foreign affairs and immigration issues. And she was the only Spanish speaker in the department. So literally almost every call they were getting, they were forwarding to AOC. And she was dealing with these families every day that were, you know, being detained and treated horribly and really got this firsthand account of these stories of the people and what they were experiencing in ICE detention centers. She recalled, I was the only Spanish speaker. As a result, as basically a kid, 19, 20-year-old kid, whenever a frantic call would come into the office because someone is looking for their husband because they have been snatched off the street by ICE, I was the one that had to pick up the phone. I was the one that had to help that person navigate that system. Also, why was there only one Spanish-speaking person working here? Like Racism, oh, probably? Like, that, it feels, yeah, it just feels like why wouldn't, it's valuable to have people who can speak Spanish. Why 100%. would you have made this 19-year-old take on that entire workload? Like, it sounds exactly. like it really shaped her, you know, political ideology. So in that way, I guess we can be grateful. Um, but, but that's at the like same a time, lot. I'm just like, <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot to put on a 19-year-old. Right, 
She graduated cum laude from Boston University in 2011 with a Bachelor of Arts in National Relations and Economics and tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt, which would also become something very important to her in years coming. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Though she keeps her personal life incredibly close to her chest, we have gotten a few opportunities to see her and her partner, Riley, and they got together back in college during something Boston University called Coffee and Conversation, which was like a debate club. And I guess the two of them kind of became like sparring partners and challenging each other a lot during debates. And they were like both very passionate about that. So they hit it off. And if you've seen the Netflix documentary Taking Down the House, they cover AOC pretty heavily. It's um, about, I think, four different candidates um, trying to get spots on the Senate, like progressive candidates getting spots um, in different parts of government and things like that. But if you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's great. And you see a lot of her and Riley together. And he seems like such a, a wonderful and supporting partner. Like she's so headstrong and like she she seems like she'd be a lot to handle just because she's so powerful and passionate and he's just so like whatever you need i'm here for you right? like yeah, that kind of really guy takes a, a certain kind of person to be able to handle someone like that um yeah not even uh, handle them feels like the wrong word but just like to be able to support them properly uh yeah because they are the kind of person who's always going to have a million different things going at any given time as well right. that, like you you really need the right kind of person who's not going to feel slighted or, you know, yeah, like he not seems like he's very much like, like he's so supportive and very much like a part of everything too. It seems like, and it's wonderful. And they now live together with their dog Deco. And I love that for them. So when her father passed away from lung cancer, it also coincided with the financial crisis of 2008. And like I mentioned, she, you know, really saw, what her mother was going through with, you know, foreclosure of the house and all these other things. And that was because she ended up moving home back to New York to live with her mother and her grandmother. And she started working a job at a place called Flats Fix, a Takiera in Union Square. Again, if you watch Taking Down the House, they show her like working in the Takiera and then like working on her campaign after work. And you see her going through all of that that she talks about so famously, like having to work you know, extra shifts to get by and to help her family while she was still running a campaign. Yeah, I mean, okay, so she was born in 1989. So she's a year older than me. And I graduated high school in 2008, which was the year of, you know, the Great Recession. Yeah, began. Um, So yeah, she's right out of high school, like when shit's at its worst. So yeah, like, exactly. She, knows. she was like a yeah. She was like a sophomore in college, I guess. I don't know. It was I don't know when she had to move home. I because I know she finished college, and then it was after that that she had to go home and work to help her family and things like that. So she is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and she very strongly embraces that label. And I think that a lot of people like you and I who identify with that look to AOC as being an example to what that means. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I would I would say that she and Bernie Sanders really brought socialism into the forefront as something that wasn't taboo, as something that could yeah. be like relatable and we could understand what that actually meant, you know? Totally. And actually that kind of going off of that in an interview with Business Insider, she broke down why democratic socialism wasn't scary for the younger generations as it is for older generations. For context, during the Cold War, animosity toward the Soviet Union manifested into anxiety over the term socialist, which has since remained in U.S. politics. AOC says, when millennials talk about concepts like democratic socialism, we're not talking about these kind of red scare boogeymen. We're talking about countries and systems that already exist, that have already been proven to be successful in the modern world. And just for clarity, the definition of democratic socialism is a philosophy that supports political democracy within a socially owned economy, with an emphasis on economic democracy, workplace democracy, and workers' self-management within a market socialist economy. They also argue that capitalism is inherently incompatible with the values of freedom, equality, and solidarity. During the 2016 primary, she worked with none other than Bernie Sanders as an organizer for his presidential campaign. In an interview in 2019 with NPR, she explains why she was supporting Sanders by saying, This is about creating a mass movement, a multiracial mass movement of working class Americans to guarantee health care, housing and education as rights for all, to draw back on endless wars and to promote an agenda of peace and prosperity abroad, and to really address some of the systemic issues that are underlying a lot of the problems and inequalities in our economy today. After the general election, she took a road trip to places around the country like Flint, Michigan, and Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And she points to Standing Rock as really being a tipping point for her and her understanding. In an interview in 2016, she spoke about how before her visit, she believed that the only way she could be successful in politics was to have access to wealth, social influence, and power. But after her visit to Standing Rock, she saw, quote, others putting their whole lives and everything that they had on the line for the protection of their community. This inspired her to work in her own community. After returning from her trip, she got a call from Brand New Congress, a political action committee with a mission to elect hundreds of new progressive congressional representatives as possible, and they were recruiting candidates. Turns out her brother had nominated her after Election Day in 2016, and I wrote, and all we did was start a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, we did the best we could. (laughs) We did the best we could. With the I skill set that we have. <laughs> I will always support, in fact, encourage people to run for local office. Like that totally. is the best, like if most you can do effective it, do way. It. Yes, that is the best, most effective way to enact change within your communities. Um, so yes, 100% run for local office. Like I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I just know yeah. that it's not, it's not who I am not for as me, a ma'am. person. Um, I, I just, I can't get into politics in that way. And so I don't think that I would be, um, productive or effective in that position. I wouldn't be very helpful, but if you can do it, please, please do it. We need more people like young people, people with radical progressive ideas to be involved in local politics. 100%. Yeah. So let's talk about her elections. She began her campaign in April of 2017 while she was still waiting tables and tending bar at Flats Fix, and she was challenging Joe Crowley in the primary. Again, I highly recommend taking down the house, watching that documentary, because you get to see 
this whole election process, and it's very fascinating. Her big disadvantage during all of this was, of course, financial. Of this time, she said, you can't really beat big money with more money. You have to beat them with a totally different game. Her approach was grassroots, and she didn't take any donations from corporations. She was endorsed by progressive and civil rights organizations such as Move On and Democracy for America. But former Governor Cuomo endorsed Crowley, as did New York Senators Chuck Schumer and and Kirsten Gillibrand, as well as right, as well as former Mayor of New York Bill De Blasio, multiple U.S. representatives, various local elected officials and groups. Even Planned Parenthood was backing Joe Crowley at this point. Crowley, however, made a mistake in not showing up to the only live debate, which made him look really bad to voters, especially because AOC pointed this out. And he had done this before. Um, He claimed that he had had a scheduling conflict and had to be in Queens. So he sent a surrogate to their only live debate. It feels (laughs) so disrespectful to do that. Well, and that's what she says. Yeah, it, it feels like you think so little of your opponent like that you're not even gonna have to or worry even of your about city winning. or of your city that you're not even gonna show up and like show like what you're planning on doing to make things better especially because you've already been in this position for so long don't you want to defend what you've been you know what I mean it just seems so foolish for them to have yeah. done that and AOC also really had a problem with the fact that the surrogate woman was you know a, another Hispanic woman that looked a lot like her and like maybe this was kind of a political calculated ploy. Exactly. And um, after this quote unquote debate where, you know, there she was even like, this is ridiculous. Uh, She went to Twitter and said, I am disappointed that Representative Crowley has failed to show up for the second time to a community debate. The first time there was an empty chair. Excuse was that he wasn't in town. The second time he sent a surrogate, except he tweeted photos of himself five subway stops away just this morning. (laughs) Yeah, like you... It is. It's like, how can you? This is your job. This is your yeah. only this job. Is your like, one you know what I mean? Job. I understand that this job entails a lot of things, but you can't make yourself available for a debate. Yeah, that seems. It sounds like he was trying to say there was something else to do with his job that he had to get to. But I don't. I don't know. It seems ridiculous. Give me the receipts. Give me the receipts then, because I don't believe. And that's exactly what she's saying. She's like, I don't know. I saw you tweeting pictures of yourself just a little ways away. Not too long ago, you know. So because of this, at the end of the day, AOC received 57.13% of the vote and Crowley received 42.5% of the vote. And this shocked everybody. And people weren't like necessarily happy about this either. Like I think a lot of people still really liked Joe Crowley in the Democratic spheres. And people were a little bit like, who is this person that's coming in? CNN and the New York Times made comments about it being a shocking primary defeat or the most significant loss for a Democratic incumbent in more than a decade. The Guardian called it one of the biggest upsets in recent American political history. Yeah, I mean, of course, like the establishment is upset about this. Like um, you have some it's the same reason why nobody wanted Bernie to win. It's just like there is a status quo that we need to maintain in order to keep the wheels of capitalism moving smoothly. And Democrats are a vital part of that machine, you know. And so if you have somebody who's like in a Democratic position, 
uh, who is kind of upsetting that status quo, that's a problem. That is a yeah, problem. And like, totally. like businesses like CNN run on that status quo. They rely on it to be operating effectively. Yeah. Such bullshit. In the general election, she faced Republican Anthony Pappas. Pappas, an economics professor, did not actively campaign. <laughs> so there's that. In the general election in 2018, she was supported by both Sanders and former President Barack Obama. Sanders says of AOC, There are some politicians who are very good on policy, and there are some politicians who are good communicators, and there are some politicians that have a way about them that relates very well to ordinary people. Alexandria has all three of those characteristics. AOC won the election with 78% of the votes to Papa's 14%. So she had quite a win there. She took office at the age of 29, becoming the youngest woman ever to serve in the U.S. Congress and the youngest member of the 116th Congress. On her first day of the congressional orientation in November of 2018, she participated in a climate change protest outside of Nancy Pelosi's office. Her first piece of legislation in office in 2019 was the Green New Deal Resolution, which is a 10-year plan to create new, good-paying union jobs to reframe the nation's infrastructure, reducing air and water pollution and other systemic problems in America. In her first term, she introduced 23 pieces of legislation, including a group of bills called Just Society, which would raise the federal poverty line, include immigrants in safety net programs, require contractors to pay living wages, raise renters' rights, and decrease recidivism. She was also a major help during the COVID-19 pandemic as she worked with Senator Schumer to include a funeral assistance program into the COVID relief package. She also remained committed to town hall meetings nearly every month during her first term, hosting a total of 25 town hall meetings. One thing that people love and still love about AOC is her social media presence and how she uses it as a platform of protest. During the 2020 election, she hosted a Twitch stream with fellow congressman Ilhan Omar, along with some professional streamers where they played the game Among Us. The stream peaked at 400,000 viewers and humanized AOC to her voters. She would go on to do more streams in the future to raise money for causes she cared about. She yeah, would I mean, it's the thing that people hate. Or it's the thing that establishment Democrats hate about AOC. Yeah. That is what makes her so popular. Which that is she can that connect. She's, yeah, she's young right yeah. like because we're only going to see more and more of that like eventually all of these like baby boomers and even like elder gen xers are going to start dying out within you know congress so we're going to see more and more millennials and then eventually gen z are stepping into this position just embrace it this is what <laughs> campaigns happening. fully on tiktok one day yeah it's gonna you be know wild. it is what it is <laughs> She would also tweet during certain events, like during the orientation in 2018, where she tweeted about all the lobbyists and big businesses that were there and the lack of activists and frontline community workers. When she made her first speech on the floor of Congress in January 2019, C-SPAN tweeted the video, and within 12 hours, it was the most watched Twitter video by a member of the House of Representatives on C-SPAN. Like, I'm pretty sure we reposted this video. Like, it was a very Probably, popular, yeah. like, this first, like, House speech that she gave was just, like, very impassioned. 
By 2019, AOC was receiving media coverage comparable to that of a 2020 presidential candidate and was considered one of the faces of the Democratic Party, and she was only 30 years old. Much of this media coverage is thanks to her enemies. Leading this charge is none other than Fox News. According to a study by Media Matters for America, she was mentioned every single day between February 25th to April 7th, 2019, with a total of 3,181 mentions in 42 days, which is about 75 mentions per day. How embarrassing for them. Like, it's just so embarrassing. embarrassing. Like, it's just like, why are you so obsessed with me? Why are you so obsessed with me? Um, That's really funny because in a little bit, I'm going to quote an article from Vogue that's called Why Are Conservative Men So Obsessed with AOC? (laughs) But um, she is mentioned more frequently. She's mentioned more frequently on Fox News than she is on CNN and MSNBC. So absolutely crazy. Uh, Fox portrays her as a radical socialist who threatens the American way of life. The attention she's receiving from the right has created the perception that her positions and policies are representative of the entire Democratic Party as well, and that is very much not the case. It's been reported that she is, quote, one of the most targeted politicians for hoax claims, despite the fact that she has just entered Congress as a freshman. They said that back in like 2020 or 2019. There have also been a flurry of fake photos and false rumors about her that have floated around social media, paparazzi photos, things like that as well, that are very like, you know, into her private life and things like that, where she very much wants to keep all of that separate. So I just mentioned that article, Why Are Conservative Men So Obsessed with AOC? They write, what really seems to rankle Republicans is that AOC is, quite simply, very effective at her job. Ocasio-Cortez is also extremely talented at something that other Democrats have trouble with, messaging. They pass popular legislation and don't claim credit for it. AOC, on the other hand, is able to explain to people how Democratic policies help them in a way they can understand, probably her single greatest asset. AOC is a member of an informal group of progressive Congress members called the Squad. Uh, The group originally was just four women, being AOC, Omar, Presley, and Talab. Am I saying the last name right? I always forget. I I don't, I think it's Talib, but I could be wrong. Okay. Trump infamously told the original four members that they should, quote, go back and help fix the countries they came from rather than criticize American government. Which, like, AOC was born here. So, what a weird thing to say. That's what she said. Yeah, he continued to make similar comments in the following days, even though three of the four women were all born in the U.S. AOC tweeted, The president's words telling four American congresswomen of color to go back to their own country is hallmark language of of white supremacists. She later added, We don't leave the things that we love, and when we love this country... And when we love this country, what that means is that we propose the solutions to fix it. She's also received harassment from coworkers such as Paul Gosar, more like Paul Grossar, when he posted. <laughs> thank you. Very good. When he, thank you. I'm here until Thursday. When he posted a video that looked like an anime where he superimposed the faces of Democratic leaders and depicting himself attacking them with a sword and killing AOC. Not cute. We talked about this on a mini episode yeah, a while we ago. Did. It we did. We really talked shitty. about it. On a mini episode and the fact that this man was not fired on the spot is truly appalling. It's insane, but they eventually did agree to censure him. And I guess that was the first time a senator had been censured since like 2010 or whatever. Like, who cares? 
another big another big media grabbing moment for her was when she attended the Met Gala in 2021. She made headlines when she attended the gala where the theme was in America, a lexicon of fashion in a white organza gown with the words tax the rich emblazoned on the back in bright red. And it was designed by Aurora James. She was a guest of the museum for the event as she was an elected official in New York City, so she did not pay the $35,000 ticket, and that was one of the big things that people were criticizing her for, especially progressive people were really criticizing her decision for attending the Met Gala um, when they felt like that was kind of hypocritical for her in a lot of ways. Um, They also criticized her for going to an event where they weren't required to wear masks as well, as this was still during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. ALC responded to those criticisms and said that they came from a sexist double standard and that she punctured the fourth wall of excess in spectacle. And I truly don't have a problem with it. I She was a guest of the museum as an elected official, and she made a very strong statement. I mean, that dress was everywhere for weeks and was such a strong message especially being in a room full of rich people you know I think that that was a really great thing that she did and really she I I didn't write this down but she's like one of the poorest members of Congress like she does not make that much money that's not her you know Just days after being sworn into her second term in January of 2021, the Capitol went under attack for the first time since the War of 1812, and that was, of course, the insurrection of January 6th. In the days following, she took to Instagram to uh, recount her experience on an Instagram Live, and it was also during this Instagram Live that she opened up about being a survivor of sexual assault and how this experience was really triggering for her. She talked about how when the insurrection was happening, she was hiding in her office and she heard a group of unknown people come in and shout, where is she? Which, of course, terrified her and she assumed these strangers were insurrectionists. But it was later found out that these people were Capitol Police officers who did not adequately identify themselves. But this did create some flurry online about her like lying that insurrectionists were in her office and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff yeah. when that wasn't what she was saying she just said you know people came in and were saying where is she where is she and if she didn't know those were police officers of course she would be terrified because as i said earlier she is like the biggest target of the far right. And I would have been absolutely terrified if I were her. Right. I mean, this is a situation where people are coming in and they're, they're threatening to hang Mike Pence, who is playing for their team. So I can only imagine how scared someone like AOC must have been in a situation like that. Absolutely. Overall, in her time in office, AOC has faced issues such as environmental policy, tax policy, immigration, and her support in abolishing ICE, healthcare, anti-poverty, LGBTQIA equality, education, police funding or defunding, Puerto Rican solidarity, banking, labor rights, opposition of the Amazon HQ2 plan, and foreign policy. Like, she's got her hands in all of the baskets, in all of the Easter baskets, (laughs) And really, um, I feel like doesn't have a very narrow focus on just like one thing that she's passionate about. She really opens her eyes to all of the different real systemic problems that are going on in this country and is so 
smart and has such a great way of articulating that, that she has done an amazing job at being able to pass legislation that I think in for a lot of other people trying to pass the same thing, it would have been less popular, but because she has such a way of going about explaining things and why it's important for us, that it does help more and more Americans kind of come onto her side and more and more politicians come to her side as well. Right. I mean, and this is not to say that she is flawless. I mean, no politician is flawless. She's definitely made missteps because I just know like she's held up to this standard of needing yeah. to do everything absolutely perfectly. And well, if she doesn't do everything perfectly, then we can't support her. And I yeah, just I feel I like that read, is such a flawed way to look at it. I did read that there was an organization that she started that is like, has tons of like dollars and like tax debt or something like that. And so a lot of the right will like to point to that, that she like owes a lot of money to that and things like that. Um, okay. You're going to find your detractors and your reasons to dislike her. And I'm sure we will find many reasons in the future. But for me, as of right now, like I, I just love how passionate she is about everything and how smart she is. Like she can just put things in a way that makes sense. And that was what Bernie Sanders was saying. Like she has a way of relating these really complicated or sometimes really scary issues and talking about them in a way that's easy for all of us to understand. Yeah, I mean, again, she's not perfect. None of us would be. Like, I'm sitting here on this podcast saying, like, hey, if you have the inclination, run for public office. Do I think that if somebody does run for public office and they get that office, that they're going to handle everything 100% perfectly up to my specific standards based right. on my worldview and ideology? No, like, probably not. But no, they're their own people and do- they're going to make their own decisions. Right. And we do the best we can. And sometimes with hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, that maybe wasn't the way to go or whatever, what what have you, you know. But I think the fact that she was brave enough to step up and um, live something that is true to who she is and what she truly believes is the right thing and the right way for the country to be going is so admirable and something that like I myself can't say that I would be able to do or am able to do. So yeah. I, I mean, I'm, uh, uh, I'm in yeah. awe of her. Yeah, I'm in like such awe of her. I just love her so much. She's absolutely amazing. So yeah, I'm really glad that I got to take the time to kind of like actually write everything down and take a look at it because I feel like I've been a fan of hers for so long. But again, I recommend go watch Taking Down the House. It's so good. All the stories they cover in that documentary are amazing. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, that's both of our stories for the day if you have any suggestions for feminist faves in the future like we are obviously needing some help we will add it to our own individual list of people to cover so please go ahead and email any topic suggestions you may have to neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com you can also direct message us on instagram and follow us there at angry neighborhood feminist if you want to check out some yamp merch you can go to our instagram page we have a link in our bio there 
You can also get the link in the show notes wherever you're listening to us right now. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but certainly not least, we are always in need of more positive Apple podcast reviews. So if you love us and you haven't told the world about us yet, please hop on over to the Apple podcast app and leave us a five star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. It truly does make so much of a difference and it makes our day. And why wouldn't you want to make our day? You know what I mean? All right. That's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together.